0: Welcome to the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and today we're talking about Juan de Pareja, Afro-Hispanic painter in the age of Velázquez, which is a new book and a recently opened exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. My two guests are David Pullins and Vanessa K. Valdez. David Pullens is Associate Curator in the Department of European Paintings at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and Vanessa Valdez is Associate Provost and Professor of Spanish and Portuguese at the City College of New York. The book and the exhibition are centered on Juan de Pareja, a painter in 17th century Spain who was, for nearly 20 years, enslaved by the painter Diego Velázquez. But they're also about much more. As Jason Farrago writes in his New York Times review of the show, they're, quote, about how things get made and who gets to make them, about freedom and violence, creative labor and physical labor, the building blocks of culture we miss when we fixate on genius. David and Vanessa, congratulations on the show and the fabulous book, and thank you both very much for talking to me today. Thank you for having us. There is so much to talk about here. Um, I'd like to ask you to start by setting the scene for us. And would you talk a bit about southern Spain in the early and mid-17th century, what we know about the society in which Pareja and Velázquez were living?
1: Sure. Um, I think much like the exhibition and catalog do function as well. Part of uh, our hope was to really set a scene that for many people, including, I think, to some degree for ourselves when we sat out on this project uh, remains pretty unfamiliar. Uh, and that's uh, a few components, one of them being uh, 17th century Andalusia in Southern Spain, and certainly Seville, which is where Velazquez is from, and Antiquera, where Juan uh, de Pereja was, was born as being remarkably uh, racially, uh, culturally diverse, um, and in which enslaved labor was uh, remarkably widespread. In this period, in the populations in Andalusia, about uh, 15 to 20% of the population are people of color, um, a very broad term that's borne out in the archives in terms of the range of terms used. And of that, about 80% um, are enslaved. The remainder are freed, uh, freed people of color as Pareja himself would eventually become. Um, and so that aren't, or that, that enslaved labor is overwhelmingly one that is uh, associated with artisanal workshops and kind of what you might call sort of middle class, which wrong term for the period, but sort of middle class and higher, uh, most households either domestically or in the workshops would have had enslaved individuals. And that's a, a kind of revelation for many people that on sort of, quote unquote, mainland Europe, as opposed to the kind of outsourcing of enslaved labor into the colonies, that uh, that was very much a lived experience for most 17th century Spaniards.
0: And was that significantly different from the, you know, the northern part of Spain?
1: It is. Um, the, there's still uh, slavery absolutely active in the court in Madrid. And that's one of the things we try to to characterize is by the time in 1623 that Velasquez. Uh, is in Madrid and by the time he's first in, we first know that Velasquez and Monde de Prea are in the same spot in the sixteen thirties, they're in this court culture in Madrid and there too uh enslaved uh presence is found, but it's less about artisanal practice there necessarily more kind of courtly one, uh, including, interestingly, um, enslaved Turks or moriscos who were thought to be people of Muslim descent uh, who are enslaved in the context of the royal galleys, ships propelled by oars that by that point were completely ceremonial, um, but was a clear indication of the Catholic church. And that is to say the Catholic monarch, the King of Spain, his power over that uh, suppressed population.
2: Also, I think when one studies, certainly the period of 711 to 1492 and the reconquest, right, of Christian um, kingdoms, that you know that that movement is north to south, right, with the last expulsion happening in Granada. And so the ever-presence, the lingering presence of a specific kind, not a specific kind of slavery, but Seville being a, the a port city, and so that being the major way in which enslaved Africans are trafficked in, but also other peoples who had been enslaved are trafficked into to Spain um, is part of the reason also why you still have that lingering presence in a way that's much more heavily noted than Northern regions.
0: Right. And the story of Juan de Pareja has fascinated both biographers and their audiences throughout the centuries since he was alive and painting. Um, would you tell us about some of his important biographers and also how you went about assembling the biography that you present here?
1: Sure. Um, really, for me, the what I present in the catalog as a biographical sketch um, really originated uh, with first encountering this sort of endless number of sources telling all kinds of contradictory tales, some of them really super sort of exciting and almost had a lot of dramatic uh, narrative effect. And he started to wonder, hmm, what are the origins of these? So what I actually set out to do was just kind of work backwards from, first of all, what can we know from his lifetime, which frankly is precious little, uh, very few documents, Um, then from Palomino, who is essentially, you know, the sort of Spanish Vasari, so he writes a series of lives of Spanish painters, including Velázquez, and remarkably also a separate life for Wanda Pareja, And that's as close as we can get, it's published in the 1720s. But he was speaking to people who would have known Wanda Pereja and Velázquez, and he's coming out of a Madrid artistic uh, kind of circles. And in that sense, that's, that biography is probably the kind of prime version from which all the other kind of narrative details that were embellished over the course of the 18th and into the 19th century, uh, that, that was sort of their platform. And so one of the things that I realized was, it was a matter of really pruning back to really to the bare bones, realizing that much of what emerged in the 19th century, much of what you'll read online, on Wikipedia, etc., until those things are hopefully corrected, um, you know, things like, Velazquez gives Wanda Pareja permission to marry his daughter and they happily ever after, or uh, Wanda Pareja kills himself in honor and protection of Velazquez's son-in-law, Matzo. All of these things are fabrications really of the 19th century, uh, which were really sort of stepped in in the absence of a lot of detail, so without a lot of archival documentation or further documentation, people stepped in with sort of uh, various narrative episodes. So the biography that's presented now is really one that was sort of uh, pruning back in order to sort of hope that there could be new growth. And we've we've tried to plant the seeds for that new growth in terms of some new archival material. One of the things I tried very hard to do was to try to activate, much as you would document, the um, paintings from the end of his life. That's something in the last 15 years of Pareja's life there is a sizable body at least a dozen solidly attributed paintings by him and to really try to read those as uh documentation we don't really have writing by him save one document which we could we can discuss but it's kind of an idiosyncratic thing but how could we understand those paintings as documentation so it was really it's been uh, some people will be disappointed to learn that we've noticed that already in the public uh viewing uh, things here, the Metz painting uh, of Juan de Preja by Velasquez is so well known and beloved by a lot of people and, and they start to tell you the stories about Juan de freja that they've clearly learned from you know, third, fourth, fifth hand. Um, and so unfortunately, it can be disappointing for people to know they, that there might be less concrete information, but new information is what we're, we're kind of hoping to, to develop out of this. Mm. Um, and, you
0: know, the, the 19th century versions of his life sort of resulted in a um, a real renaissance of interest in him. He was, you know, a, a fairly famous figure for a while then. You think that's uh, largely because of the fabrications that started to come into play at that time?
2: It's interesting to note that, you know, it's one of the things that David and I had spoken about is that he becomes a um, a historical curiosity. And that I believe is in relation to his being of African descent, right? And so you can map comp- public, the conversations around peoples of African descent in the public sphere, right, from the 17th century in Spain onward uh, and kind of see how he is treated. So by the 19th century, we have abolition. Across the Western Hemisphere being actively discussed, and so we see a switch in how he is spoken about, right And so you see a rise you know throughout that century of you know the relationship with with Velasquez, you see you know emphasis on assistant, whereas earlier on there was very clear uh, assignment of him as being enslaved and then then the the uh, motivations for his being freed all of a sudden comes into play. And so whether, you know, this was again, an act of beneficence, um, they were true friends, all of that, right, is really, you see how people are grappling with enslavement and freedom uh, by how they are speaking about Juan de Padeja.
1: Yes, I I would just add to that. It's absolutely, that's absolutely the case. And this tension between these broader concepts of freedom and slavery, are definitely there from the start. And and in Palomino, one of his contradictions that he tries, he kind of posits as this problem, it's obvious he's fascinated with it, is how can the practice of painting, a liberal art, be done by someone who's enslaved? And so this relationship between slavery and creativity, what does enslaved artisanal labor mean? This is something I've become completely fascinated with. And it's one of the reasons I, I really wanted to educate in both the exhibition and catalog that really most material culture and artistic production in 17th century Spain is in some way related to enslaved artisanal uh, labor. Um, and so that's that sort of tension is there from the start in a really long standing, you know, liberal versus mechanical arts kind of uh, story for Western art. Um, but as Vanessa says, in the 19th century, this starts to weave into increased um, attention to the question of abolition colonies versus metropole this kind of thing and uh you can see in those 19th century stories there are even plays about him which he speaks and you know the poems and things and some of those are definitely have a have an abolitionist uh thrust to them i mean we read them today and a lot of the language can seem quite racist in fact um Unsurprisingly, for the 1860s, for example, but the overall thrust is to try to humanize and say that this is a person um, whose biography, you know, we could know and he could have a family and all of these things, interestingly anticipating a lot of a lot of later things. Um the I suppose the other thing to say about that for the 19th century historiography is that you know i often say that in many ways Juan de name was probably more familiar then than it is now although we're hoping that in the course of this exhibition that might change um, but you know he's bantered about not only among in the kind of popular press even school language primers people learning spanish in the 19th century his name crops up children's books Art historians. But what's really remarkable, and, and really the reason that um, I first spoke with Vanessa, uh, was there's all this literature on him in the 19th century. There's some sense of his role potentially in an abolitionist debate. Um, but uh, all of these authors are distinct in that they really don't understand necessarily the depth of potential for Juan de Preja's biography in the present. And the exception really there comes with Arthur o. Schomburg, who in the 1910s and 20s is thinking about him. And then is publishing it on him in the 1920s and really understands the relevance of that historical uh, story for not only the present, but also the future and thinking about a future for Black artistic production, as he would term it, uh, in 20th century America.
0: Yeah. Would you talk a little bit more about that? Arturo Schomburg is a a fairly major character in the book also. So so when and how does he come into the story and, and what did he have to say about Juan de Pareja? So Arturo
2: Schomburg is born in Puerto Rico in 1874. Puerto Rico is still a Spanish colony at the time. He comes to the United States um, at 17 years old. And by that point, the story goes, one story that he repeated is that while he was being, that while he was in school in Puerto Rico, he was told explicitly by a teacher that black people had no history. And so this is seen to be the seed for all that he does. And so for the rest of his life, truly, beginning in his 20s, um, he is deeply involved in a number of efforts to collect Black history, to archive it, to preserve it. Um, He is initiated into the Freemasons. He's doing that work in, within that realm. He co founds uh, along with a mentor, something called the Negro Society for Historical Research. So he is doing this continuously for the span of his life. And what is interesting about Abdullah Schomburg is that his definition of Negro, which is using the parlance of the time, is not just English speaking. And so You know, one could make the direct correlation between the fact that his mother was born in the Danish West Indies. He's born in Puerto Rico. um, He's raised between Puerto Rico and St. Thomas and St. Croix. uh, And so he understands that an African diaspora is is not just English speaking. And so he is mostly related to the Harlem Renaissance. And, you know, for for decades, people have seen him as an African-American and it, his birth in the Caribbean was kind of seen as incidental. But what, what my research bore out was that he is always writing about peoples of African descent, not only throughout time, but also in multilingual settings. And so Spain is one of those places. And he first began writing about communities of African descent in Spain in the 1910s. He writes about Juan Latino, who's... who's book is in this in this exhibition. Um, this was a 16th century uh, professor of classics at the University of Granada who um, was born in southern Spain. Um, he's writing about Juan de Pareja. He's writing about peoples of color and one, particularly for men, one means by which they could ascend in terms of society at the time was through the Catholic Church, through confraternities. So he is doing all of that recovery work. And then, as he is collecting everything about global Black presence, and uh, he sells his collection to the Carnegie Corporation for the explicit purpose of donation to the New York Public Library, to the 135th Street Branch Library. And with those earnings, he travels to Europe, the first stop being Spain. And so what we showcase in in the exhibition is... A, a small number, very small number of his books um, that he donated, six of which he did prior to this this trip. Uh, and they include books written by men of African descent that were being published in European capitals. Um, they include his, and, and they include uh, two books that write about, that talk about these communities of color, particularly of African descent in Southern Spain. Um, and we also include the article published in The Crisis, the literary device of the NAACP, by which um, W.E.B. Du Bois was editor. Uh, So after his trip, he returns to New York. Um, He sails June 26. He returns September 1926. uh, And he he publishes about traveling to Madrid explicitly to go to the Prado to see the work of Juan de Pareja. Um, And this was the article that attracted David's attention to uh, invite me on on this adventure of curating this exhibition.
1: Yeah, it was certainly the moment of seeing that article as I was just in the preliminary stages of understanding the literature on Wanda Preha. And I saw this and I'm thinking, in Harlem, 100 years almost exactly 100 years prior to the opening of what was slated to be the opening for the exhibition, you had someone who's in Harlem thinking about Wanda Preja, his political relevance in the present, in the 1920s, in Harlem. This is, you know, the Met doesn't acquire the Velasquez portrait of Wanda Preja. that's the impetus for the exhibition, until 1971. And so there's this sense that there's a sort of preamble to the New York story here that felt as though this was not only the opportunity to better understand the sort of very complicated sort of reception history of both Velasquez's portrait and Wanda de Preja's biography more broadly, particularly in an African diaspora. Um, but also really to point, and this is perhaps more evident in the exhibition than it is in the catalog, but to really point to the fact these are questions that have been asked before. They've been asked by people Outside the walls of the Met, uh, perhaps without the resources and and kind of, you know, might of of this institution to put on a very public facing exhibition. But we wanted to foreground that um, as a kind of preamble to our own investigation, one in which not only had the questions been asked before, but also the methodology of thinking when you look at the past, you can do so with an eye to the present. Its potential for kind of political and social relevance now, uh, as much as it is recovery work for its own sake.
0: Mm. Is there any evidence that that uh, Schomburg's article in the 20s spurred any interest in the American museum world in Juan de Pareja at the time?
2: It's interesting because I think his most direct relevance or influence is you see. Um, both Elaine Locke and James Porter write two of the earliest uh, collections on on Black art, Negro art, African American art. And in both of those texts, there's mention of Juan de Padeja, not not only in terms of the Velázquez portrait, but also as an artist in his own right. Um, And so that, what you see and what I really appreciate about uh, how Jason Farrago wrote about this exhibition is the question of audience as well because there seems to be a diversion or a a difference in reception uh, because one of the things here's where i would cue to david and his research in the met archive
1: yeah i think it's actually it's quite it's been a bit of a uh, what unsettling but perhaps unsurprising revelation to follow essentially two bodies of literature that are sort of ships in the night uh, for decades uh, and that would certainly say that all of that kind of research on an art historical side but is speaking to the present for a Harlem Renaissance um, artistic circles you know the writers who are kind of responding to not only the painters sculptors etc in your members of the Harlem Renaissance but saying there are precedents for this uh, in questions of black excellence in history etc all of that dialogue largely absent certainly from um, the more kind of straightforward kind of historic, like kind of traditional approach to Velazquez for sure. But even in art history more broadly and here at the museum. Um, and one of the things I did do when when beginning this project was really to try, I wanted to understand a little bit about the institutional history, about the acquisition. Um, so when it's purchased in 1971, it's making headlines, including on the front page of the New York Times is the most expensive painting. They say ever, but it's really not the case. But it's still five and a half million dollars, which today sounds laughable, but at the time was a scandal. Um, looking both through our kind of uh, the, the minutes for our trustees and the acquisitions materials, the same at the National Gallery London, where in England they were trying to keep it because the painting had been in England for about 200 years. And so they're trying to raise the funds there to keep it. In all of that discussion, which you might describe as the kind of Establishment, uh, for lack of a better term, but that sort of sums up the basics of it. The the question of Juan de Preja as a sitter, um, interest in his biography, in a, frankly even in a positive or a negative way, is completely absent. They're they're obsessed with the fact that it's a masterwork by Velázquez. It's one of the think, kind of icons of Western portraiture, um, one of the best things outside of the Prado. Blah blah blah, and and zero interest whatsoever in Juan de Preja, even though. In part, thanks to Palomino, early on, from the get-go, everyone is fully aware that, of the full name of Juan de Preja, and the fact he was enslaved by Velázquez. But that seems to be of no interest to people in the 70s when when it was making the news,
2: or at least to the audience from at which or about which David is studying. Again, that was primary of interest in within Harlem Renaissance circles, um, and one can see even unofficially, one of the things that David and I had spoken about was the resonance of the painting for wide groups of people. And you can see that even on social media, even using the hashtag Juan de Pareja, um, you see how how people respond to that painting. Uh, his visage, that Velazquez portrait is used in various studies in Afro Hispanic literature to connote colonial Latin America. So, again, we really see a divergence in, in people's responses to this painting, at least with, within, again, uh, um, a per, perhaps uh, dominant um, mainstream white traditional uh, art historical space and an African American, African diasporic space.
0: So, in a sense, that this is an exhibition that is a hundred years in the making. Yes,
1: we would like to think absolutely. that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yes.
0: Um, let's go back a little bit to Pareja's life um, and specifically his relationship with Velázquez. What what do we know about that, or what can be said about that?
1: Yeah. So um, we understand that that uh, Juan de Pareja was born in Antiquera in the south of Spain, uh, around sixteen oh eight. Um, presumably he's born to an enslaved uh, woman, his mother and his father may well have been freed, his father may well have owned his mother, that was by no means unusual. Um, From 1608 until 1634, we actually have no documentation of him yet. Um, And so for that period, we can only give kind of uh, circumstantial, you know, sort of the range of possibility what his life might have been like, given sort of aspects of of his biography and what we do know from later. So in 1634 is the first document that emerges in Madrid uh, associating Velázquez and Juan de Pereja. And so we don't know how they encounter one another. Um, We don't know how um, Juan de Pereja came into the Possession of Velasquez by purchase, by gift, by inheritance, by dowry—actually, probably not dowry, because we have some of those papers—but all of these are possibilities, and we don't know how long at that point. So, from 1634, he pops up in uh, kind of legal documents, often as someone who's present at the signing of. Um, legal agreements, sometimes very minor things, uh, or including things related to the marriage of Alaska's children, etc. And then perhaps the most heavily documented moment is when the two go to Italy together between 1649 and 51. And that's the moment in 1650, of course, when the Met's portrait of uh, Wanda Preja by Velazquez is painted. And so that really, from that moment forward, it's much easier to document him in part because they're there and the, the two of them are there in an official capacity. So they show up in documents quite a bit, uh, including, of course, in the exhibition catalog, the manumission document signed the same year as the Metz painting, whereby Velazquez agrees to free Wanda Preja, uh, contingent on another four years of enslaved service, which uh, we've come to know is actually sort of. Uh, standard of manumission documents of the period Uh, and then following that back in madrid um, his own career as an artist so we have that we have them sort of in the same i should say i guess we have them in the same place a lot of the legal you know the kind of archival documents showing their proximity these are pretty dry things they don't say a lot about people's feelings about each other their emotions about the things the the manumission document says you know that Wanda Preha is so wonderful that, that Velasquez is eager to do this. But of course, who knows whether that's true. That's also pretty standard language in manumission documents. Um, and so at that point, you're really left with a feeling of quite a lot of speculation. I would say that Vanessa and I get this question quite often. Well, what was the relationship? It's very difficult to speculate. And I think we've, we've been hesitant to do that. Um, you know, I think it's one of the things that I can say is we've tried to point people to the idea of the incredible intimacy of any kind of domestic labor to the proximity to you know folding your laundry, etc. This kind of intimacy that is beyond—it's uh, not friendship, but it's remarkably close. And of course, in the end, in a way, with the Velázquez portrait, how can we ever understand what is the relationship of someone painting someone he owns when the sitter of the painting? is legally owned by the person painting the painting that's probably beyond our comprehension um and is part of the power of the of that painting and uh part of its mystery obviously
0: was it at all unusual that velazquez chose to do a portrait of a, a person whom he owned you know he was he was uh <clears throat> hoping for a commission to paint a portrait of the of the pope when on the on his Trip to Italy. Um, what you know was—is it remarkable at all that that it was uh, a painting of Pareja that he used as kind of a um, an application?
1: On some level, it is uh, remarkable. I think it's you know certainly it is remarkable in the history of, of portraiture um, as the you know as we lay out in the catalog. There are precedents among you know we want to think of black figures in both paintings by Velazquez and Murillo uh, as people who they would have encountered who are live models, much in the way of any other uh, live model of the time rather than types, et cetera. And that's pretty well borne out by the the surviving work, even though art historians have long been pretty much in denial of that. Um, In terms of this, I, I mean, I've increasingly seen the Met's portrait as a kind of calling card upon arrival in. Rome, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine a moment when Velasquez arriving in Rome wasn't incredibly famous and everyone was excited by whatever he was doing and interested, but actually um, that's not borne out in the archives at all, actually, A lot of the commentary are essentially who is this upstart guy? He's working for the King of Spain, he says, but he's kind of pretentious. There's the sense that the Spaniards are kind of backwater compared to the Romans in certain aspects. And so he's really not well-known at all. And so that painting uh, is probably the first in the whole series of portraits, including that of Innocent the 10th, that uh, Velazquez paints in Rome. And it's shown in the same year that it's painted in 1650 publicly, uh, and presumably was a kind of calling card. It's hard not to also imagine that that pairing that in the, in the historiography, it's, it's been how it's been seen, but it, it works quite well. And convincingly, you know, Velasquez is really staging himself in a sense. And increasingly, I think of even the Manumission document as potentially staging his presence in Rome. And he's aware of that kind of public perception um, in terms of the lowest and highest stations of society. So the sense that Velázquez can do it all, uh, be it the enslaved man or the pope.
0: Hmm. Um, In the book, uh, you talk about how many of the, you know, much of the enslaved artisanal labor in Spain um, was responsible for grinding pigments for the artists who were their enslavers. Um, But there's also some conjecture that uh, Pareja was involved in more than that in Velázquez's workshop. What, What leads you to wonder about that?
1: Well, I think, you know, it's it's early literature on, um, including Palomino on uh, Wanda Preja says that he's grinding pigments, he's priming canvases, he's stretching, you know, canvas onto stretchers for for Velasquez. And that's probably all very true. And uh, a lot of the 19th century caricatures actually that you see or illustrations, although they lean caricature wise, uh, of Wanda Preja show him sweeping the floor, etc. And that's, Obviously, it was a necessary task, and it happened through enslaved labor frequently. However, we also know through documents, for example, silversmiths who are selling individuals between themselves and a higher price is demanded because someone is capable of gilding. Gilding is a pretty relatively high level skill in the the workshop. So there's clear evidence that it's not unskilled labor by any sense that's happening uh, in these workshops. And there's no reason to imagine that this wouldn't also have been the case for Juan de Preja. Whether he's actively painting all the time for years with Velasquez, it's it's not certain at all. And that was not borne out in the research. One of the things that I, I have posited um, is in the context of trying to rebuild a corpus of works for Wanda Preja, as Vanessa said, trying to take Wanda Preja out of historical curiosity into just a more conventional reading of him as an artist. Part of that was to try to reconstruct the body of works um, that he painted. And so in the exhibition and in the catalog, one of the absolute earliest, that is sort of a proposition uh, for now, is a painting from 1650. We have the receipt. uh, It's always hung in Santa Maria Maggiore, the basilica in Rome. It was paid for um, by the members of the basilica in 1650, and it's a copy of a Velasquez head of Philip IV. And there are all kind of circumstantial reasons to imagine um, that asked for a head of Philip IV, um, Velazquez, rather than doing it himself, we can tell that the, the, the way the finances are working at that moment uh, for the people commissioning these portraits, they're more interested in the, in the effigy than they are in necessarily who painted it, and they're not willing to pay very much. Uh, it looks like it's perfectly logical that Velazquez could have handed that task off to Juan de Prea. So that's presented in the exhibition as, as, as a potential point of departure as early as 1650. The first signed and dated work by Juan de Pareja is a full eight years later in 1658.
0: Mm. Um, <clears throat> one of the really, I think, wonderful aspects of the way the the book has been put together is, that, um, is the conversation between the front and the back cover of the book. The, the back cover is Velázquez's very famous portrait of Juan de Pareja. The front cover is a self-portrait. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, that decision and and how you imagined those two being in conversation with each other.
2: We really wanted to focus on Juan de Pareja himself. And so the the easiest way to do that was to foreground his self-portrait and yet at the same time recognize that most people without knowing who the sitter was knowing the name many people recognize the velázquez portrait and so for us it was necessary to put those two images in conversation because it begs the question who do we what version do we trust who do we trust more do we trust the vision by the enslaver of the man that he owns do we trust the image that that now freed man painted more than a decade after the first was was created. Um, th- it opens up a lot of questions that we wanted to highlight and yet not resolve at all.
1: I think it's also to say that really, you know, at certain moments in the research it was really a matter of particularly the question of Velasquez's second trip to Italy, this 49 to 51, it's incredibly heavily studied and well documented. Um, and we know that the only person who's actually with Velasquez that entire time is Wanda Pareja. And so one of the things for that period in particular I kept thinking was how, and this is along the lines of the, the two sides of that cover, how at each turn, at each, you know, fact we know about Velazquez in that moment, what was the perception of the experience to whatever degree we're able to even imagine it for Wanda Pareja? And so it was more sort of building out from rather than, uh, you know, we, we knew we had to, we were sort of dependent on the existent literature and people's, even people's familiarity with Velasquez. And and I, I do really appreciate Jason Farage's uh, comment in the New York Times that quietly, uh, this is in fact the largest group of works by Velasquez to be gathered in 20 years in New York. And indeed, and quietly was quite deliberate. It was by no means an easy thing to bring uh, that number of works by Velazquez together. People are not wildly eager to to ship paintings by Velazquez around. Um, But we didn't want him to, you know, he's, Velazquez is in no danger of his name falling from history. Uh, And we we thought we didn't need to further buttress that. Um, We were using it as kind of a kind of a foundational uh, kind of baseline for a lot of people's entry point to the story of Wanda Pareja. But we really wanted to land both on the cover of the exhibition catalog, also the huge banner out front of the museum. Our signature image is that same painting that includes a Mm. self-portrait.
0: That absolutely makes sense. I mean, you know, it's also true that Pareja's story has to include Velazquez. You know, can't really understand him without having Velazquez be part of the picture. Um, But, you know, this does represent an incredibly important effort to provide a contemporary approach to Pareja as an artist, both from an art critical and an art historical perspective. Um, And I wonder if we can finish, if I could ask you each to reflect a little bit on that importance. There's a, a quote from Arturo Schomburg that is in the book, of course, and also printed on The wall in the exhibition above Velázquez's portrait. And the quote is, history must restore what slavery took away. And I wondered whether those were sort of guiding words for you as you went through the process of putting this all together.
2: They absolutely were for me as someone who I was so thankful to David. Um, Even in our initial conversation, his initial vision of this exhibition was very much about contextualizing. Juan de Padeja. And so the idea that we are really, rather than kind of broadening out how Velazquez lived and how Juan de, Padeja, Juan de Padeja lived, we're really focusing in and just highlighting again, how these these two men, but the whole society functions at the time. And so, you know, it, I, I, I love how David says, and David, I'm going to quote you to you. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but just the idea that this, isn't, this was by no means a revisionist uh, project, that this is, you know, when we were talking about the canon, the art history canon, there's perhaps, you know, no place more canonical than Velazquez's studio. And so it really is just really honing in on who was with him How did he get to be where he was? And to deny that um, Juan de Padeja was a significant contribution, not only to Velazquez's success, but to his own afterwards, um, is in that that's the blind spot um, that hasn't really gotten much attention. And so it really was our intention solely, you know, it wasn't to condemn or judge or do anything other than present this is what this history is, this is what this society was. Um, and we can see legacies of that into the current day, um, but it was so deeply important for us to, again, as you said, um, you know, complete uh, a, an exhibition or a show that really is a century, more than a century in the making.
1: Yeah, I think actually, Vanessa, maybe that was the perfect conclusion. It's hard for me to really follow. I mean, I, I would say that, as as you said, that I, I I became sort of obsessed with this idea that this is not a peripher- This is not something really coming from the periphery, as much as people might want to frame it in that way. It's actually from the very heart of art history, the very center of the canon, and Velasquez's studio. And actually, what's particularly unsettling about that, but hopefully also invigorating about that, is to say that. We, whoever that might be, in my in my case, a relatively traditional training in in art history, have maintained blind spots that are shocking when they're revealed. Um, it's alarming that with such proximity to such a major figure, such a heavily mined figure, about whom you think can another book truly be devoted to Velázquez? Couldn't we couldn't we move on? And yet, there's this huge chunk of information for a totally new narrative um, that really I hope changes the way we perceive. Um, 17th century Spanish art and visual culture more broadly. And that potential for renewal, even at the center of the canon, uh, was one of the most, as I say, both unsettling and perhaps uh, invigorating aspects of this project.
0: Well, thank you very much, David and Vanessa, for coming on the podcast and talking to us about Juan de Pareja. Thank you. The book we've been discussing is Juan de Pareja, Afro-Hispanic Painter in the Age of Velazquez. It is the catalog for the exhibition of the same name, which is on view now and until July 16th at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Juan de Pareja, the book, is available now online or at a bookstore near you. Thank you for listening. Visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast as well as information about all of our books.